I before E, except after C. Now, how many here remember that little ditty from your elementary school days? I think we all do. We remember chanting that in grade school. And for generations, as you know, it has been one of the most commonly used mnemonics to help us learn how to spell certain English words in English. It has helped us to spell like IE words such as friend, thief, and yield, and EI words such as ceiling, receive, and deceit. But you may also remember as soon as you learned that, you were told a lot of exceptions to the rule. A lot of qualifiers, and that list started growing. For example, the word neither and weird. And as far as we know, this I before E except after C little ditty came into being somewhere in the mid-1800s, believe it or not. But before long, it became known as the short form of the rule. And that's because all of these exceptions to it caused a lot of teachers to add all of these qualifiers. So more recently, it has been altered to I before E except after C or when sounded like A is in neighbor and way. But you know what? That long form didn't cover it either. It offered no help for words like height, or leisure, agent, efficient, protein, and species. And then, for heaven's sake, just consider the word seize and siege. Neither rule helps with that. For these, they say, the memory gimmick is better. You lay siege to a city because the second letter I is in both siege and city. And you seize someone by the neck because the second letter is E in both seize and neck. And maybe you just, at the end of the day, just ditched all of that anyway and just submitted every word, memorized it, and tucked it into long-term memory. Or you just rely on the spell checker, like probably many of us. A few years ago, I'm told that a document came out for the instructors there in London, in Britain, and it was called Support for Spelling. Ideas for the teacher on how to make spelling more engaging. And they issued this piece of advice saying, Stop teaching the I before E except after C little convention because it's confusing our kids. And in short, there are so many exceptions, it said that this really isn't a rule anyway. And some other spelling conventions are used. But in this document, it said, Just go ahead and ditch that one. Not everybody agreed with that advice because many said, well, at least it helps us to show how peculiar our English language really is. As I was thinking about that this week, as I was reading 1 Corinthians 13, we call this, folks, the love chapter for a reason. And here we find ourselves, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, really challenging us, really telling us, how do you spell love? Notice he gives the rules here for spelling love. He says, love is patient. 
He says, love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. It's not arrogant. And it's not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And it says here, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul's rules here that he's giving unto us is far more poetic than this chant, I before E, except after C. But clearly here, in spelling love in his word, I doesn't come before anything. Because when you love someone, you always comes before I. I don't think many people would disagree with that. But saying that and doing that are two different things, isn't it? What's the ultimate test of love? I'll tell you what I think the ultimate test of love is, is when somebody hurts you, how do you respond? When you get bitten, when someone shares an insult, how do you respond? Do you hold a grudge? Do you allow the poison of cynicism to take root and become bitter inside? How do you handle it when someone hurts you? Well, Paul says it here clearly in verse 5, did he not? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs that others do. In other words, love doesn't keep a tally. Doesn't keep a running score. It doesn't store up hurt or keep a grudge. One guy said, when my wife and I get in an argument, she gets historical. <laughs> he said, historical, don't you mean hysterical? No, historical. She brings all this stuff I've done from the past and throws it at me. We've probably all done that in our past. In the counseling realm, we call that gunny sacking. People build up ammo so they can just bring it out when the time is right, when it's convenient, to dish it right back out. But the Bible says love doesn't do that. Forgiveness may be the single most difficult act of love there is, above all other things. You know, it's interesting that in the press conference there several years ago when Dana Curry and Heather Mercer, these two girls were released out of Taliban captivity, and they were interviewing them, and they said, what was the most difficult thing about being imprisoned and kept as a hostage, what, what was the most difficult thing being imprisoned by the Taliban? And they said it was living with six other women in a very small room. We had to forgive each other a lot. And I want to say to you, we're all living in a very small room. This world is much smaller than we think. And we have to learn to forgive one another.
You and I know there's a lot of shoddy thinking out there about forgiveness. But I want to suggest to you today, it's you before I. We must forgive. Because real love tells the truth. And that is, friends, what I have tried to do with these last few weeks. In fact, it's what I've tried to do throughout my ministry. It's to tell people the truth. To help people to get in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm sharing with all of you today that you are loved. I love each of you. Regardless, I care about you. And as we stand here today on the eve of this consequential vote, I want you to know that I harbor no ill will, ill feelings toward anyone. I love everyone, including our bishop. He's a great man. I appreciate his uh, leadership and know that he is in a very difficult spot. Who would envy to be in that kind of position? Our district superintendent is a great person. They all love God. Remind you that when I accepted this call, pastors are ordained to word, sacrament, and order. That's my job. That's what my duty and responsibility is, to preach the word and the full counsel of God's word. And it's to administer the sacraments. And that's Holy Communion and that's Holy Baptism. And to keep the order. To organize us so that we can be as fruitful as we can for the kingdom of God. I'm a pastoral shepherd. And that means as a shepherd, you get to know the sheep. And you get to care for the sheep. And when you hurt, I hurt. And it also means that I feed the sheep. Sometimes people don't like what I feed and lay on the table. But it also means you pick up the staff and you guide people the best you can to be on the straight and the narrow path. The Bible says there's a, a way that seemeth right unto mankind, but the end thereof is death. And we need to be on the straight and narrow. It's a tough task in our day, in this culture. Friends, as we've said, no one likes any of this. I don't enjoy conflict. I'm probably one of the most conflict avoidant people that you know because I know how painful it is for everybody. I'm in there with you. But there is at the end of the day can be no doubt that Houston, we've got a problem. There's a real issue or issues in the landscape of our denomination. There are stark differences that exist and this is why the board of servant leaders said we need to put this before our whole church family. It's not their decision, it's your decision. We are empowering you to tell us what direction you want this church to head. It is your call. 
That's why we brought in speakers. We've had handouts. We've shown videos. And we've attempted to indicate to you that there are differences now within our denomination of a doctoral, doctrinal stance. Core tenets of our faith are embraced in different ways. We've attempted to show that there is an issue of accountability. And that leaders in our denomination have declared that their intention into the future is to ensure that the denomination holds to all kinds of versions of Jesus and the Gospels. And to embrace those not following at their own discretion. And that's a difference. There's a lack of agreement. There's an issue of accountability. And it's not everyone. Make no mistake about that. We're not suggesting that or trying to quantify it that way. But it, it, it does exist. For example, the Bible. People interpret the Bible in different ways. Some believe the Bible is the Word of God. Others believe it contains the Word of God. It's in there somewhere, but it's got to be demythologized. It's got to be processed. That's a difference. One person put it like this, said, I find it interesting that both the atheist and the fundamentalist tend to adhere to a literal reading of the Bible. And the difference is one believes none of it and the other believes it all. We read in the Bible, Jesus is the door that leads to life. We're not saying Jesus is a piece of wood. Or if we say he is the vine, we are the branches, we don't have branches or leaves coming from our arms and legs. We know it's metaphor. We understand. There's analogical language in the Bible. There's metaphor. There's, there's hyperbole. And we also know there's poetry and history and story and there's reality. You know, everyone takes it literal when it says, you know, God is love. Or you need to love your neighbors, you love yourself. Or we need to help the poor or go forth and make disciples. No, I appreciate what one scholar said it like this. He says, I don't think taking the Bible literally is taking it seriously enough. And that's because you can go off the right side of the road just as well as you can go off the left. Some believe Jesus is the Son of God and others don't. Some believe that all religions are equal and provide salvation. Others don't. Some believe that Jesus historically, bodily, raised from the dead. Some don't. We've tried to show that there is this issue of agreement on core tenets of the bait that are in question. Our denomination has, over the years, had the full embrace of religious pluralism, allowing people to interpret things in the way they see fit. And this has just grown and grown and grown and grown over the years. And even though it was attempted to be removed from the discipline in 1988, we have these vast theological differences that plainly indicate there's genuine differences in core tenets of the faith. 
Leaders have plainly demonstrated that one can accept or deny these things and interpret them however one sees fit and still be welcome. There's differences over atonement, over trinity, over the resurrection. And if you see that as a positive and think that's okay, then you're going to want to stay. And if you don't think that's okay and you see it as a negative, you're going to want to go. There's uncertainty now in our future. But let me tell you folks, no one is rushing into this. This has been going on for years. I know it feels like we're rushing. But we only have about 12 to 14 months for you to make your mind up. And really, it's not that long. With all the process you go through, there's less time than that. So make no mistake, the General Conference actions have compelled us to consider our future, and this is not my decision. I will not be voting. It's not the decision of the board, only to bring this before you. This is certainly a unique situation that has never been visited before upon us, but you are being empowered to tell us the direction of this church. This is a big deal, and believe me, we wouldn't have brought it up. But we knew it needed to come before you. Some of you may be okay with things and the current landscape and not feel a concern about it, but others of you might be greatly concerned and think action is needed. But in all of this, I want you to know we support and love one another. At the end of the day, my job is to point people to truth and God's best. What is it that you think God's best is? I want this congregation to continue to flourish. My hope is that nothing changes. The book of discipline doesn't change. We can continue off a vacation Bible school, stepping forward, food pantries, all kinds of programs just like we've done. And that we continue to love everyone, gay and straight or whoever you are. For me, being relevant does not mean that we let go of basic doctrine. As a minister of the gospel, I can't run from some 2,000 years of history. But I know today the choice is yours. And I choose you before I choose I. Shall we pray? Holy God, we come before you in these days with such pain in our hearts. We recognize here there's no winners and losers. We know how challenging this is. Lord, we seek your face today and we ask for your wisdom that your peace would prevail in our hearts and lives, that you would guide us, Lord. That regardless of the outcome, we would, we would choose you over ourselves. May your arms wrap around every heart here today, all of our families and gift us, O oh God, with clarity and strength.
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn.